Thank you, team. All right. All right. I'm going to dismiss the kids. I did not even realize they were still here until they all popped up. All right. You guys are free to go. Okay. While they're making their way out, I'll just remind everybody that today is my wife's birthday. Happy birthday, Kendra! She's 33, so I don't know. That's how old Jesus was and he died, so. You made it! Um. Okay, I want to tell you a little bit about my family and our background. Uh, you all know that I'm from a rural little small town in Pennsylvania. But my great-great-grandfather was a full-blooded Lakota Sioux Native American. He came from the uh, kind of the North and South Dakota area, um, moved to Western Pennsylvania, and that's one of the ways my family got to Pennsylvania in the 1800s. So, his name was John Freeman, which then we anglicized to John Freeman. But he was known as John Freeman. Uh, he was my great-great-grandfather. So while I am probably one of the whitest people you'll ever meet, my family does have a very proud Native American stream in our blood that we like to brag about and talk about. Um, and it's specifically the Sioux tribe, the Lakota Sioux. Now, not the Sioux Spina tribe. That's a whole different tribe uh, that fills up half the sanctuary. Well, maybe we are somewhere. But, uh, so, the Sioux actually have this, uh, this understanding of, of, of history and of generational connection that they, they call the seven-generation continuum. And the idea is that the three generations that precede you and the three generations that will follow you are closely connected to you. So the three generations that precede you are the ones that really make you who you are. So that would be your parents, your grandparents, and your great-grandparents. And those three generations play a big role in why you were born where you were born and why your family values the, thing it va the things that it values and why your parents raised you the way they raised you. So there's three generations that really pour into what you're going to grow up to be like. And then the three generations that follow you, which would be your kids, your grandkids, and your great-grandkids, are the three generations that you're going to impact the most directly. And after that, your influence on your ancestors kind of wanes. And I thought about that because I know my, obviously, my parents' names. I know my grandparents' names. I know my great-grandparents' names. But after that, unless I go look it up, I don't know the names of, my, of the next generation. Unless I do some research. I never met those people. And, you know, for many of us, our great-grandparents are the oldest relatives we ever met. There's not many of us that ever met, I don't know if any of us here have ever met our great-great-grandparents. Has anyone here ever met their great-great-grandparents? 
Really, Pat? No, great, great. So it'd be your grandma's mom. Great, sorry, your great grandma's mom. And I don't know, I mean, I hope that I, I intend to meet my grandkids. Great grandkids might be a stretch. Great, great grandkids, that doesn't happen very often. So those are the, it's the three generations you might have been able to encounter, and the three generations after you that you might have an opportunity to encounter. They call that the seven generation continuum. Those are the ones you might have experiences with and influence and be influenced by. Now, I love that idea because it just resonates with me as true that that's how many of us get to be who we are. It's by our families and the couple generations that precede us. But also, I love the idea because it gives me a really clear paradigm of how I should be raising my kid. Kids, I should say. You know, I, I want, I have to someday teach my son how to be a husband and a father. And sometimes I remind myself that I'm raising my grandkid's dad and my grandkid's mom. That's a weird thing to think about. So if I don't want my grandkids to be little punks, that has to influence the way I raise Aiden and Emma. And if I want my kids and my grandkids and my great-grandkids to have a good life, the decisions that I make right now it affect that and influence that. Not, you know, as the generations go on, it's less of a direct influence, but there's still an influence. Because if I raise my kids right, then they're most likely going to raise their kids right. Right? So that's a, it's just a, a Sioux tradition, the seven-generation continuum. I share that because that is not that different from a, a Hebrew or Jewish cultural concept of, of a cycle of generations and that the behavior of the fathers and mothers influences the spiritual state of the sons and the daughters in the next generation and the next generation, that what we do now matters for generations to come. That's a very biblical idea. It's a very Hebrew Jewish idea. And I think it's something that, that is important. And in Nehemiah 9, we begin to see the priests of Israel lay out Israel's history with God. And the priests get up in the Nehemiah 9, starting in verse 5, and they lay out this, really, from, from creation to present day, 30-verse history of Israel, uh, his, Israel's history with God. And they lay it out. It's, it's longer than one generation. It's not your history with God, but it's your people's history with God. And, and they're laying it out for them to see and understand. Now, we're going to be looking at Nehemiah 9, verses 5 through uh, 38. That's 33 verses. It is a long section. So I'm going to break it up into three shorter sections. So Diana Anderson, would you come up? Diana's going to read just... Uh, Verses 5 through 15, I'm going to teach on that, and then we'll move on. So, could you guys give Diana a round of applause real quick? We'll see if they clap when you're done. They never clap when I'm done. Then the Levites, Joshua, Cadmiel, Benai, Hasher, Benai, Sherah, Benai, Hodai, Shebani and Pethani said, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. 
You alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them. And the heavenly host bows down before you. You are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and gave him the name Abraham. You found him, you found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, of the Hittite, and the Amorite, of the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Geshurite, to give in the, to give it to his descendants. And you have fulfilled your promise. For you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. Then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is, as it is in this day. You divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters, and with a pillar of cloud you led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night, to light for them the way in which they were to go. Then you came down to Mount Sai and broke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes, and law. Though you, your servant Moses, through your servant Moses, you provided bread from heaven for them that there, for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for, the, for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to, in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. Just because I'm not sure you witnessed what happened there, you clapped for Diana. She goes, see? <laughs> Wow. All right. Okay. Uh, thank you, Diana, for reading that. So the very first couple verses, the, the priests stand up and they start telling the story of Israel's history with God and they start at creation. If you have a Bible, if you use it on your phone or a paper Bible, you want to grab one, one of the ones in the pews, go to verse 5, uh, even verse 6. And he starts talking in verse 6 about God is making, he made the heavens, the heavens of the heavens. Uh, he made the earth and everything that is in it, the seas and all that is in the sea. And he's starting with, with creation. And then he goes on to the story of Abraham and Sarah and briefly summarizes the story of Abraham and Sarah. He goes uh, to the captivity or the, the slavery in Egypt that Israel uh, went through. And then Moses taking them out and they wandered through the wilderness. It says in verse 12, 
Uh, with a pillar of cloud, God led them by day, and with a pillar of fire by night to light the way for them, the way that they were to go. And so the priests are reminding the people about how their ancestors used to function and used to relate to God. And he's kind of saying, remember now, you've heard the stories that our people used to wander around in the wilderness with nothing to guide them, but either a cloud during the day or a pillar of fire at night. And God fed them miraculously. It's a, it's a pretty incredible story. And so the, the priests are just summarizing that. Now, I think that there's a couple reasons that Nehemiah and the priests are doing that. One is to give some context to what they're experiencing right there. I think it's important to understand history. If for no other reason, it is interesting. I love history personally. It's interesting. It's fascinating. But it gives context to your present. And it gives purpose to your future. If you understand history, you know, why is it a big deal that they rebuilt the walls in 52 days? Why is it a big deal that in chapter eight, they reinstitute the Feast of Tabernacles? Why is it a big deal that they're reading the book of the law six hours a day and confessing their sin? It's a big deal because of everything God had done prior to that. That, that what they're going through is not some isolated random event in the course of human history. It's part of this story of their people, and it's part of Israel, Israel's story with God. And then fast forward a couple hundred years, Jesus comes around. And so now Nehemiah is part of Jesus's background. You know, what happened to these folks in Jerusalem is part of Jesus's background. So it gives context. I think also it establishes a shared history for the community. Shared history is powerful. We at Truvine we have a dozen different birth nations represented. Uh, we have people that are born all over the world. Uh, I, I mean, there's certainly churches that have way more than a dozen, but we have a dozen different nations, birth nations represented. Each one of them with a different history. Right? I mean, Abby, were you born in England? I love England's history because I'm on the good side of that. Sorry. We just got a couple pitchforks and shovels and got ya. Got him. All right. So, but every, every nation has a different history. Every nation, every nation has a different background. The priests are telling Israel, we have a shared history. We all come from the same place. We have the same background. We have the same ancestors. You were raised on the same stories that I was raised on. And in doing that, it unites the people and then brings them even up to date. You know, we, uh, I love to tell the story of Truvine, how it got started, um, how, you know, some of the things we did and the, the ways that God showed up and was faithful. I found that we have to tell that story because as the church has grown, not every, I mean, almost nobody that was there on day one is still around. I mean, it's like myself, Kendra, and Luis, and, and Jean, Miss Jean, if you know Miss Jean, are like the only people left from the day we started having services, and that was less than six years ago. So we have to tell the story again, because 99% of the church wasn't around when we started, and that's only six years ago. So we, we retell the story because even if you weren't here, 
that's part of our shared history now that you are here. You know, I, I love that Mike said he'll be here for at least 10 years. I have that recorded now, and uh, I'm going to get your DNA off the microphone, and we're going to hold you to that. But, you know, uh, you know, Mike and Loretta were not here even six months ago. They weren't here when the church started. They weren't here when we went to two campuses. But they're here now, and it's important for, for them to know the shared history. But also, you plug in, and now we have a shared present and hopefully a shared future. So I think that the priests are establishing a shared history. I think they're providing context. And it is important to know the history of your personal uh, relationship with God, the history of your family and how they related to the Lord, because there are spiritual consequences, both positive and negative there. Uh, I think it's also good to know the history of your church. Um, you know, this church in particular that we meet in, that we rent from, they have 130 years of history. I love, every now and then I stumble on old documents. I actually got a book that's about Tacconi and started reading it just to find out about Henry Diston, the guy this building is named after. We found a picture, uh, a hand-drawn picture. Uh, two weeks ago, we found it in storage. It was a picture of the piano and like this part of the stage that our worship team sets up in. The picture was 30 years old. Nothing had changed. I mean, everything was, this, I mean, that's kind of funny in and of itself, I guess. But I, I like seeing that. That's relevant history to me. That's pertinent history to me. Uh, you know, if you walk through the foyer and see all those black and white pictures of people we've never met, obviously we've never met them, but there's history in that. And I think that that's valuable. Um, knowing our own church's history. As he goes on and, uh, as he goes on, or as the priests go on, sharing about the shared history of Israel, it's not always pretty. He highlights some of the sin in their history. And, you know, I don't know what they would have been like, but they might have been like, yes, we did do that, didn't we? We did worship other gods. Even though God got us through the Red Sea and fed us miraculously, our people really rebelled a lot. And it's not this squeaky clean retelling of their history with God. Nehemiah and the priests make sure that they leave all the warts in. Um, you know, where they screwed up, where they sinned, where they rebelled, where they were wicked. Last thing I'm going to say about the, the history, kind of as it relates to our church, and some of you have heard this before. You know, we, our, our church is actually the, re, the resurrection or revitalization of another church that was called Walter Erb Memorial Church. It shut down in 2008 with six people left in it, and we restarted that church. When we went through the records and the history of that church, which I love to do, we found several things that were unsettling. We found one thing in particular that the governing board of that church told the pastor not to perform interracial weddings. That was in the church documents. We read that, and we, I think Luis and I both were kind of sick to our stomach, like, that we couldn't believe that that they made that decision and that they had that attitude. And it really helped us understand why they went from 300 people to six people so quickly uh, when they took that attitude, especially in the, as the neighborhood changed. And so we had to do something that they had to do in Nehemiah 9, which is repent of sin we weren't even around for. You know, it says in uh, 
uh, in verse 2, which we didn't read today, but it says in Nehemiah 9, verse 2, that the people stood and confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers. And they had to repent of sin that they weren't even alive for, that they didn't commit, but, but their repentance from it freed up the whole nation from the consequences of it. So when we found that thing about not, uh, not being permitted to perform interracial marriages, we repented of that. In fact, we still every now and then re-repent of it. But we found that probably 50% of the marriages that we perform here at Truvine are, are interracial marriages. Is that even the right term? Do I sound like a hillbilly? I, don't, I never know what the right terms are nowadays. They change too quickly for me. I don't know. I'll just put it on Facebook and find out. Um, marriages of people from different, different ethnicities. But fi- I would say 50% of our weddings for that, and about 60 to 70% of the children in this church are the, are the result of that. And uh, I love it, personally. My family growing up was mostly interracial marriages. Uh, almost all of my aunts and uncles married African Americans. I have nine cousins, six of them are black. I love it. I, I thought that was totally normal, actually, until I found out some people have an issue with it. Um, only Christians for some reason. Southern Christians, mostly. All right, that's enough of the history. I'm, I'm rambling now. So I want to move on. So he, he shares this history, establishing context, establishing a shared history for them. And Nate, if you'll show, throw up the first slide for me, I'm just going to kind of give you a heads up on the, the main points I'm going to hit today. So he's establishing a shared history for the community, or I should say they, the priests, are establishing a shared history for the community. And then I'm going to ask Brandon uh, if he'll come up. You want to come up, Brandon? All right. This is Gary's brother, Brandon. Yeah, you can clap. That's fine. Brandon's going to read uh, verses 16 through 25. I'll step out of your way and give you this microphone, Brandon. So if you want to follow along in your uh, Bibles, you can do that. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds, which you had performed among them, so they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Even when they made their made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, This is your God who brought you up from Egypt and committed great blasphemies you in your great compassion did not forsake them in the in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud did not leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night. to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them, your manna. You did not withhold from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst. And indeed, forty years you provided for them in, in the wilderness, and you were not in want. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet swell. You also gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them as a boundary. They took possession of the land of Sihon, the king of Heshbon, the land of Og, the king of Bashan, who made their sons numerous as the stars 
of heaven, and you brought them into the land, which you had told their fathers to enter and possesses. So their sons entered and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. And you gave them into their hand with their kings and the people of the to do with them as they desired. The, they captured fortified cities and a fertile land. They took possession of houses full of every good thing, hewn cisterns, vineyards, olive groves, fruit trees in abundance. They, so they ate, were filled, and grew fat, and revealed in your great goodness. This next section, uh, these 10 verses, are kind of a sprinkling of the, the priests reminding Israel of God's faithfulness. And I could also add God's faithfulness in the midst of their own wickedness. That despite the fact that they were worse than imperfect, they were straight up rebellious, uh, straight up wicked, straight up sinful, God was still faithful to them. Uh, at no point did God wipe them all off the face of the earth, although he would have been justified in doing so. He still provided for them. He still led them. There was no point that I'm aware of where God said, you know, you guys have been so bad, I'm just going to get rid of that pillar of fire and let you wander around. There was no point where God did that. He continued to provide that for them. Now, he did slow things down, and he said, you know what? There was a point where their sin was so great where God said, you know... This whole generation is going to have to die so the next generation can go in. He did do that, but he was still faithful to the community. So there were individuals that had to deal with the consequences of their disobedience, but God's faithfulness to the community was still uh, solid. At no point did he withdraw his presence. Uh, he, he did at times have to send them into uh, discipline, is the only way I really know how to say it. But he never stops providing food for them because of their sin. Uh, he never stops providing leadership for them because of their sin. He is faithful even though they are faithless. And you need to know that God is faithful even if you don't have faith yourself. If you screw up, you sin, you mess up, you disobey, you rebel, God is not going to leave you. Okay, He, he loves you. And his love for you is not based on your track record of obedience. It's based on him and his character and his nature. Now, I know that God doesn't like our disobedience. I know that Jesus, you know, it's more than God doesn't like our disobedience. He, he hates it and punished Jesus for our disobedience. And um, so it's, very, it's severe and it's serious, but you need to know that, I mean, that's how important Jesus was and how important the cross was. I mean, it reconciles us to a God who hates our behavior sometimes. And it's through the cross that we can be reconciled to a God who hates our behavior. And the truth is, sometimes we hate his behavior. And when we hate his behavior, that's it. Now, I think when, he, when, when the priests are telling about how God was faithful, that should encourage people. That should encourage them that, you know, if we screw, should we screw up again, God is not going to leave us. I think people are way more prone to return to a God that they know has been faithful to them. I don't think people 
respond very well to a petty, scorekeeping God. And sometimes when we, when we talk to people about God, we present a petty, spoiled, childlike God, and we wonder why they don't feel drawn to that. Because that is not how God is. God is not here to rub your nose in your sin. He's not here to crush you, although he could. Uh, but that's not what he's about. I think people are more drawn to a God that they know is faithful and loves them despite their behavior, despite their lack of faith. So it should encourage future trust in God, increase faith in God. All right, last section that we want to do. Glenn Miller, would you come on up? Glenn's going to read. Uh, all he did was stand up. I've been preaching for 20 minutes. Yeah, whatever. I don't even care. Yeah, that was for you too. There you go. I'm going to go uh, just have a quick cry. And I'll be back in a minute. But they became disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them so that they might return to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in the time of your distress, you heard from heaven, and according to your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who delivered them from the hand of their oppressors. But as soon as they had rest, they did evil again before you. Therefore you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they ruled over them. When they cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion, and admonished them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances, by which if a man deserves them, he shall live. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. However, you bore them for many years and admonished them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, your great compassion, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps a covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardships seem insignificant before you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and on all your people, from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that has come upon us. For you have dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, did not serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we are slaves today, and as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and its bounty, behold, we are slaves in it. Its abundance produces is for the kings whom you have sent over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. 
All right, so this is the last portion uh, that the priests are, are telling them about. And essentially, this portion stands to serve as a reminder and a warning of Israel's proclivity or just repeated rebellion against God. Um, if you look, uh, just right, the first couple of verses Glenn read, uh, if you look at the end of 25, says, they reveled in God's great goodness, and then verse 26, but they became disobedient and rebelled. And then in verse 27, it says, God delivered them into the, <laughs> into the hands of their oppressors. So it's kind of like this, things are going good, and then they get cocky, and then God humbles them. And then in verse 28, uh, sorry, in verse end of verse 27, God delivers them from the oppressors. It's interesting that he delivers them into the hands of the depressors, uh, <laughs> oppressors. And then he delivers them out of the hands of the oppressors. In any event, it's God doing it. It's God putting them under discipline, and then it's God taking them out of it. And then in verse 28, as soon as they had rest, they did evil again. Ugh. Come on. Figure this out, people. I'm talking to them, not you. I love you guys. Uh, <laughs> but it's, it, uh, you know, you read through the Old Testament, it's frustrating. It's like, come on. How many times could you go through this? How many times are you going to make the same mistake? And then you look at your own life and you're like, oh, that many times. All right. So I'm really not that different from Israel because I, we, go, we all go through cycles. I think actually there is a clear cycle in Scripture that Israel goes through, uh, and I want to put it up on the screen if you can for me. This is, I think, the cycle that they go through. So I want to stop, start at the top with blessing. The cycle starts with blessing. God blesses Israel. Things are going relatively well. Because of the blessing, they respond with, in, they, they, they are led to a place of comfort. They feel like, hey man, we're doing good. We got this start storing up stuff in their storehouses, taking it easy. Uh, and that leads to compromise. And they begin to compromise with sin because they think that they're beyond discipline or beyond failure, too big to fail, too rich to fail, too smart to fail. And so they begin to compromise with sin, and that leads to God's discipline. And he disciplines Israel, and sometimes he disciplines them with a plague. Sometimes he disciplines them by sending them into captivity in another land, so they're no longer free. Uh, but God disciplines them. After the discipline runs its course and has its intended effect, they respond with repentance, which is generally humble. Their repentance then leads to blessing, and now they've done the whole circle. Now, but the blessing often leads to comfort, which leads to compromise. And the compromise leads to discipline, and the discipline leads to... And you just kind of go through this cycle over and over. And if you read, I mean, read like First and Second Kings and Judges and First and Second Chronicles. You just see Israel going through the cycle of good king and bad king and good king and bad king. Uh, there's a man named Thomas Carlyle. This is key, and I think we have to understand this. Thomas Carlyle said, "There's a, for every hundred men that can withstand trouble, there's only one man that can withstand prosperity. 
And what he means is, it is actually easier to stay faithful when times are tough than to stay faithful when times are good. It's when times are good that people begin to drift and they begin to get comfortable and they lose touch with their need for God and they lose touch with the things that got them to the place of prosperity or got them to the place of blessing. They take them for granted, they loosen up, and then they begin to drift. I mean, it, I see it all the time. People show up at church for the first time when they're going through a crisis. Which is actually, that's fine. It's when things get better and you disappear, and then the next time you come back because of a second crisis. And then things get better and you disappear. And, you know, I actually have, God uses crisis to draw people to him. It's the repeated pattern of where you only show up when there is a crisis, when you only pray when there's a crisis, when you only call out to God or have a relationship with God when there's a crisis. That's a pattern. I think it's okay to start there as long as it's this one-time thing and you build from there. But if it's a cycle, I think you're going to be frustrated. And God's, if crisis is what gets you to lean on God, guess what? He's going to keep doing that as long as it works. Right? I would. If the only discipline that works on my son is spanking him, I'm going to do that. Not that you should spank kids. But I do. So, I don't know where we are all on that topic, so I'm going to move on. But this is interesting to me here, because it seems like it's a little bit of a dance or a response. So, blessing the people, that is an action of God, right? God blesses the people. Then the next, I don't know if you want to maybe combine comfort and compromise there. So, that is their response to God's action of blessing is compromise. God's response to their compromise is discipline. Their response to God's discipline is repentance. His response to their repentance is blessing. So really, it's it's God and man responding to each other back and forth the whole time. So really, and I, I preached a sermon series on this over a year ago, how you respond to God is actually really important for your spiritual life. If you respond to God well, you've got things going for you. If you respond to God poorly, you're going to have a rough go of it. Because he's always active, and you'll always be responding to someone that you have a hard time responding to. I really think that that is the definition of what reverence means, is to respond to God well. When God is active, when God is present in your life, do you respond well or do you respond poorly? So there's this cycle... That Israel is in. Now, I think that cycle is indicative of how pretty much how we all respond. I think we all respond that way. But specifically, I want to ask you, what, is the, what are the cycles in your life you find yourself repeating over and over and over? If you can identify those cycles, that's one of the first steps to breaking the cycle. You can almost anticipate what's going to happen next. I have this cycle that I go through. I'm confessing here. Don't judge me. I have this cycle that I go through. When things are going good, I take credit for it in my life. I'm like, yep, I got life figured out. I'm 33. I figured this out really early. And I start to get kind of cocky and puffed up and arrogant. And that leads to depression. This mild form of depression where I'm like, 
I can't, I'm not in control of everything. I can't make, things aren't going the way I want them to go. It's not, this isn't what I pictured. And that leads to depression, which I found the solution for that in my life is, is increased worship. I mean, I, a couple hours a day is what helps me. And so the increased worship reminds me that I don't have life figured out. And that's a cycle that I go through. So when things are going good, I take credit for it. When I take credit for it, the flip side of that is I have to take the blame. If you take the credit, you have to take the blame. Which leads me to depression. I dig myself out of depression by increased worship. Uh, and when I'm worshiping more, then the f- life's going better, but then I start taking credit for it. That's my cycle. I've been through that cycle enough times now that I see it coming. I see it coming, and when I feel that first little pang of depression coming on, I know now is time to begin worshiping. I don't need to spend an unnecessary long, unnecessarily long period of time in the depression phase. I need to, God is about to humble me. So let me cooperate with that so it doesn't take forever. James says, humble yourselves under the Almighty God. So whose responsibility is it to humble you? Yours. It's your responsibility to be humble. If you don't take that responsibility, God will gladly oblige and do it for you. But I found that you can move through it quicker if you just respond well to the humbling experience and and go with it and lean into it. Does that make sense? So there's these cycles that Israel goes through. And ultimately, uh, if you look at verse 33, I think this is the, the key verse that stuck out to me this week. Verse 33 says, God, or thou hast dealt faithfully, but we have acted wickedly. And that's the story. That's like the human story. God has been faithful, but we have been wicked. And you can beat yourself up and feel bad and guilty and full of shame over the verse that says we have been wicked, or you can be grateful and glad and worship God because of the, the line that says God has been faithful. And I want to just encourage you and warn you, don't get too focused on your own wickedness. You need to know that we're all screwed up and we all hurt each other. Often our own pain is what causes us to inflict pain on other people. So you need to know that, there's, that there is that, that wicked streak in you. But really, the, the focus of that verse is not your wickedness, but God's faithfulness. And I think that's a little more encouraging. It gives people a little more hope that as bad as we are, man, God is good. He's faithful. Even when you screw up, he's faithful. Um, if he wanted to snuff you out by now, you'd have been snuffed out, right? If God wanted to get rid of you by now, wouldn't he have? The fact that he hasn't, I think, means that he still has purpose for you, and there's still a reason that you're around. Um, so I'm, I want to ask Shay actually to come up and help us close uh, this afternoon. Uh, you all know Shay's one of our elders. What is that noise? Oh, okay. Is it, someone's gambling. All right, so Shay's going to wrap up for us and uh, help us lead uh, into the presence of the Lord. All right. So from what... I take from what Jim has shared with us today. I'm trying to put it into a practical sense as we leave here this afternoon. Um, just to quickly share a little bit about myself. Um, 
those of you that have been with the church for a while, you've heard my testimony in the past. What brought me to Christ was crisis, crisis in my financial life. God blessed me with resources, and I squandered it. And what I've come to realize since I've been in crisis, three things played a part in that. First, family history, spiritually. I know that my grandparents dealt with, you know, what the Western world would consider black magic, naively, because that's what they were known to do. Secondly, the household that I was raised in, my parents, my family valued material things. You know, success was based on the material things you had. You know, and third, that even though my mother took me to church and I knew the scripture, I didn't apply it in my life. So when I was meant to be faithful with what I was blessed with, I wasn't. But since turning my life around, I have, first of all, prayed against any spiritual curses in my life. Secondly, um, I have God has showed me how to be content with what he's blessed me with. So even if I'm blessed with more, I want to be faithful. Not because it's necessarily what he asked, but because I love him. And finally, for our children, which is the next generation to come, for my child, I don't want him to go through the same cycle I went through. So what I take from what Jim has said here today is that first things first. Right now in my life, I'm in the comfort phase. The next thing that might come is compromise because I'm comfortable, but I don't want to get there. It's the reason why I pray daily. It's the reason why I go to a discipleship group during the week. Because I live in the world like oh, we all live in the world, where I'm faced with so much more out there that is not what God wants. So I need that guidance. And last... Because I don't want my child to repeat the same thing, I want to share with him the gospel. So what I encourage all of us to do is, first off, plug into a discipleship group if you're not in one now. Pray faithfully. If your children of age to come and understand the discipleship, bring them. You know, the Bible is part of our history. As we share our own history about our grandparents and stuff like that, we also need to share the Bible with them because that is part of our history as well. And then last, be honest with our kids. Has we, because one thing I've realized is that when there's crisis and you only share the good things out of the Bible and you don't share your mistakes with your children, they start to think God is the reason for those mistakes. But he's not because he's faithfulness. Sometimes we have to be honest with our kids. They're like, I was disobedient to God, and that's why I am where I am. So that as they grow and as they understand, they too will know how faithful God is. And they, too, will not continue the cycles that we may have been um, a part of. So I'm just going to quickly pray for us before we leave. So if you guys don't mind, bow your heads in prayer. Father, thank you for your word this afternoon, Lord Jesus. And as we leave here this afternoon, Lord Father, we ask, Holy Spirit, that what you've opened our eyes to, what you've shared with us, Lord, that we do not leave it here, but that we take it with us. Show us how to apply this to our daily lives. Holy Spirit, lead us on how to apply this to the lives of our kids, Lord. And more importantly, Lord Father, let our lives be a reflection of you in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes, Lord Father. Lord, we never want to be stagnant Christians. We don't want to be Christians that just stay with, that we believe and don't do anything about it. But rather, Lord Father, we want to be Christians that say we believe and our actions show that we believe, Lord. Let us end the cycles 
Lord Jesus, and stay faithful to you as you are faithful to us. Bless each person here today as we go forth. Bless the homes that we're going to, Lord. And I pray for the week ahead that we all have a blessed week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's food in the uh, parish. Um, I believe there's chili.